0: Good afternoon. Let's get this show on the road here. My name is uh, Dan Albrecht with Leopardo. Uh, I am chair of programs along with Jeanette Outlaw with OFS Brands and Howard Wender with Strata Real Estate Services. Thank you all for coming out uh, in today's, to today's luncheon. Uh, today's program is being co- uh, podcast, as I always tell you. Um, so, if you guys do have questions and we will open this up uh, towards the end, please raise your hand and we will bring the microphone out to you. Um, coming up programs, is, uh, as Carla had mentioned, October, uh, we're going to go with a kind of a political government focus and the timing is working out as such with uh, the recent resignation announcement with Mayor Daly and the upcoming election in November. I thought that uh, this program would be perfect. Uh, for uh, what the government's impact is on our business. And uh, you know, we hear Obama talking about uh, the proposed tax freeze on capital and construction projects. If that goes through, how will that impact us all? And that's what we're gonna explore uh, next month. Also, we got back on the docket here, our October, uh, in, in October is our Wisconsin program. I'm gonna bring up Tom Stacey real quickly to uh, kinda highlight what we, uh, the road trip up north to, uh, to Uline.
1: Thank you, Dan. Uh, as Dan mentioned, we've rescheduled our Wisconsin program. It's October 20th, which is a Wednesday. Good time to break up your week and come north. It'll be at the Uline facility. Uh, for those of you who may not be aware, Uline was a longtime Illinois company, made a decision to move their corporate headquarters to Pleasant Prairie, just across the border. Uh, we're going to be discussing what they went through to make that decision, what government incentives were offered through the state and local community uh, to, to have Uline arrive there. So we're hopeful that everybody can come up. More details will be on the website. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Tom. And then November, it will be our annual year in retrospect and we're gonna look at ROI. And that's really a focus on uh, retail, office and industrial markets, and what uh, what's happened uh, there the last uh, 12 to 18 months or so. <clears throat> in December, there will be no lunch program, and then in January, we're already looking ahead. We already have our speakers lined up from the Federal Reserve for our economic forecast. Today's program, Tales from the Trenches, we have Kyle Kamen, Senior Vice President, C.B. Richard Ellis, Mark Delf, Director, Real Estate, Fortune Brands, John Strike, Senior Vice President, Corporate Real Estate, North America, for HSBC. Kyle Kamen is currently Senior Vice President with CB Richard Ellis, a specialist in structuring complex real estate transactions. Kyle has distinguished himself as one of the preeminent real estate consultants in the Chicago market. In in addition to his expertise in downtown Chicago, Kyle has established long-term relationships with a number of the world's largest corporations who have benefited from his representation across the country and around the globe. Over his career, Kyle has managed more than 10 million square feet of real estate transaction, valued at more than $5 billion. In 2009, Kyle and his team were recipients of the prestigious Chicago Commercial Real Estate Development Association Transaction of the Year Award for the representation of KPMG. Mark Delph is Director of Real Estate for Fortune Brands and has been in this role for nearly 10 years. Fortune, as we all know, uh, is it, and it's through its subsidiaries, engages in the manufacture, production, of, and sale of spirits, home and hardware products, and golf products. Prior to his role at Fortune, he was with USG for three years, and before that, Mark had a short stint as a broker at Cushman and Wakefield. John Strike is Senior Vice President, business partner for HSBC's CARD, consumer lending, technology, and corporate businesses in North America. HSBC is a fully outsourced model, and business partner is a single point of accountability and leadership with the business. In addition, John manages occupancy planning function and other major projects, including their new corporate headquarters in Matawa, Illinois. John's first responsibilities at HSBC were transaction project management for retail facilities, and has subsequently held many different positions with over 15 years in corporate real estate. Let's bring up our speakers and a nice round of applause, please. Thank you.
2: Hello, everyone. That works. <clears throat> My name is Kyle Kamen. I'm thrilled to be here today. I want to thank uh, Cornet for having me, and particularly Dan and Margie for inviting me to moderate today's panel. Uh, I was asked to do a brief market overview uh, prior to getting into Tales from the Trenches, just to provide some context as to what's been going on over the course of the last 18 months. The recovery continues to be uneven globally, with Asia-Pacific outperforming. We are seeing that regions with sound consumer and business demand will experience quicker recoveries in commercial real estate. That being said, intra-regional disparities continue to exist. Economic recovery is slowly returning to Europe, but its recovery has lagged behind other regions. However, London's West End market still ranks number one on CBRE's global index of most expensive markets. The recovery has been strongest in Asia, with China leading and India posting impressive growth. Hong Kong is the second most expensive market on the globe right now. North America's most expensive markets are led by Midtown New York, but while occupancy costs in Midtown are high for North America, that market ranked just 26th globally. And you should all be thrilled to know that Chicago is not one of the 50 most expensive markets. Despite crisis in sovereign debt markets earlier this year, the majority of regions experienced growth in investment turnover in the second quarter. Investors are wary about the strength of economic recovery given recent weakness in a number of economic indicators users remain concerned uh, about lease lengths and other covenants. Until these fears ease, activity will most likely be concentrated on high quality buildings in prime markets. Leasing activity remains weak given concerns about the strength of economic recovery. Declines in rental rates have stabilized in most markets with initial signs of recovery in supply constrained areas such as London, Hong Kong, Washington, D.C., and New York, especially for high-quality assets. The second quarter of 2010 brought more evidence of a revival of U.S. investment sales activity from the very depressed levels of 2009. More transactions are being consummated as sellers are finally recalibrating their pricing expectations. The recovering investment activity, originally confined to the strongest markets on the east and west coast has gradually been spreading to the interior and second tier cities. Class A office buildings in the Midwest and southeast markets are attracting multiple bidders and strong pricing. A good example of this is what recently transpired at 300 North LaSalle, with the sale uh, that uh, broke a Chicago record. It traded for more than $500 a square foot. However, and it's important to note, sales volume in the first half of 2010 was more than 80% lower than the first half of 2007. In the U.S., the office vacancy rate increased again by 10 basis points to 16.7% based on transactions through the end of the second quarter of 2010. This is the 11th consecutive quarterly increase. However, it is the smallest incremental change in vacancy rates that we've seen in two and a half years. We certainly expect that our third quarter statistics, which will be released shortly, uh, will show another increase in vacancy, but by an even smaller amount. Financial firms, which tend to have a large presence in downtown markets, continue to consolidate in right size following the financial crisis. On a national level, the downtown vacancy rate remains elevated at 13%, 120 basis points higher than a year ago. The national suburban vacancy rate is at 18.7%, 110 basis points uh, higher than a year ago. Chicago's overall vacancy rate increased to 17.3%, including sublease space. As you can see, much higher than the industry average, only 2.6 million square feet of sublease space is available, representing an 11% decrease since the beginning of 2010. Such decrease has been due largely to renewals and space being returned to landlords as subleases have expired. Um, I, I, I would point out that, uh, that the sublease market in the smaller range, 5 to 10,000 square feet, is pretty active right now for good existing condition space. Supply is constrained by a number of buildings that are unable to respond to market conditions. More than 10 million square feet of inventory in the CBD is either on C.B. Richard Ellis' foreclosure watch list or is considered cash constrained. The construction pipeline has come to a standstill. On a very positive note, Chicago has benefited from almost no significant bankruptcies of its largest occupiers. Moreover, unlike other major markets, specifically on the coast, Chicago has not seen any of its large law firms dissolve over the course of the downturn. The suburban markets have been very depressed over the last eighteen months. There are few the the vacancy rates, including sublease space, rose to twenty-three point seven percent in the second quarter of two thousand and ten. There are a few signs, though, that indicate the suburban Chicago market may begin to improve in the next few quarters. Several large lease transactions have signed recently, including Career Education Corp. in Schaumburg, Hewitt Associates in Lincolnshire, Verizon Wireless in Elgin in Schaumburg, and U.S. Cellular in O'Hare. Investment activity has accelerated, including seven building sales in the second quarter alone, including Highland Point in Lombard, the Crossies in Oakbrook, and Canterra 1 in Warrenville. 9501 uh, West Technology Parkway in Rosemont was recently completed, the last building under construction in suburban Chicago. With tightened debt markets and high vacancy, no significant projects are expected to break ground in the near future. All right, so what's going on in the trenches? I think this guy's facial expression sums it up. The significant highlights are, as I see it, that most tenants are uncertain about the future. Mixed messages in the marketplace are causing tenants to be confused. Not every landlord is in trouble, and not every tenant is in a position to renegotiate its lease. Unfortunately, the media and brokers are probably the result of this confusion. Tenants are under increased pressure to reduce occupancy costs. Corporate capital is not being directed towards real estate initiatives. Real estate executives are working to employ workplace strategy across portfolios in an attempt to reduce costs, create efficiencies, and improve productivity. Every landlord's financial position must be scrutinized. And now lenders play a significant role in every transaction, and on specifically large transactions, deal timelines must be extended by two or three months to account for lender-landlord negotiations. In a nutshell, angst reigns in the trenches. So John, as an esteemed real estate executive, what's going on in your mind in this in this environment of angst.
3: For the last two years we've been in the mode of cost reduction. We're trying to find every way to take costs out. In our world it was vacancy. We had huge amounts of vacancy, so we've been on a fairly complex, very analytical approach of what we should shut down, what we should keep, and have significantly reduced our portfolio size. I think the thing that's starting to change right now is, you know, we're looking to the future. You know things are going to turn. We're starting to see it in some of our businesses. We're trying to be more flexible, looking at both up and downside, not knowing the exact direction it's going to go. And, and I'll say "nimble" would be another word I'd use. Um, this thing can take off in a minute. I, we have a very large card business. If that card business takes off, it grows very fast. And all of a sudden, you need five thousand, you know, six thousand extra seats in the U.S. You know, it's it's just a time of change, and you just got to be ready as a real estate executive to to meet any demand up, down. Both ways.
2: Mark, how about you? Are the guys at Jim Beam drinking a
4: little bit more these days? <laughs> well, we hope everybody's drinking a little bit more <laughs> these days. Um, You know, I'll echo what John talked about. Um, It depends on our business. To your point, um, some of our companies got impacted much more significantly and more early in the cycle than others. Uh, Almost half of our business three years ago was home and security products, and that's down to 17% of our business now. So as you can imagine, that was quite a wrenching supply chain adjustment. So we adjusted our portfolio and did that early on in the cycle and made some very difficult decisions and executed on some difficult strategies, which are now paying off. So we're actually um, at a position now with with our different businesses to play offense. So we're actually looking at how we can out-execute and outperform our competition. And we're doing that extremely successfully on the home and, and hardware side or security side. Um, the Spirits business has been stable for us, so, so that's been a, a very um, good... Um, our, our business model is working quite well right now, and that's, that's about 70% of our business nowadays. So a lot of folks kind of say, well, why don't you just become a Spirits business? The volatility actually plays well with our portfolio, because although our home and security business tanked and got hit hard because of economic conditions, um, and Spirits was quite stable, when growth returns to the other businesses, that volatility will play well to us. And we're in a position to really uh, take advantage of the market at this point and out-execute our competition. Um, on the golf side, we've seen declines, um, but not nearly as it was, it was actually pleasantly surprising. So we didn't ex- it didn't decline as much as we expected. So um, we're ready to play offense. Good, good. John,
2: in, in a time like this with, with so much uncertainty, How do you employ a a real estate strategy?
3: We're in a people business. And, you know, I think our our starting point is always people being in the best markets, the right markets, the cost driven markets, deep labor pools. And, you know, so we've started there as our focus. You know, you're you're not going to just exit all your markets and go to cheaper markets because in some cases You're in great markets already, and we found that out. So we focused on the right markets, getting in the labor pools. Everything today is driven by financials. I mean, at the end line is, we are, you know, people like myself have become, you know, we're analytical. I mean, we have to be to talk to the C-suite. And we've been successful taking complex issues, boiling them down to, and, and I'll say all-encompassing presentations to the C-suite. Well, you're not just talking about um, real estate costs. You're talking about labor pools, labor costs, you know, all the things around people considerations, amenities, marketplace, et cetera. So we're doing work that I wouldn't say is traditional real estate anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're, we've stepped outside of that. And, it's, and it's, I think it's the way that you know, the top real estate organizations have to do.
2: Sure. Mark, what about you? Is it, is it more difficult to
4: employ a, a real estate strategy in today's environment?
3: Uh, it's, it's
4: a smaller piece of a larger strategy. Let's put it that way. We talked about this at lunch a little bit. And um, I wear many, many more hats than I used to. Um, so we look at, at operations and supply chain more, much more holistically than we used to. We do very few one-off deals. So when we're restructuring businesses, um, you know, I'm in, a, in the fortunate position of being in those rooms in a lot of cases. So um, we, we more directly influence strategy and exactly how things are going to play out on the operations side. Um, but it, it's, as John mentioned, very analytical. So we look at, you know, incentive availability, labor cost, wage rates, um, rent rates, transportation costs. There are a myriad of things. But overall, we're trying to get our, our portfolio of businesses the most efficient that they can be. Um, regardless of where we, we carve out the costs, we, we really look at it holistically. Okay.
2: So, John, once, once you settle on a, on a real estate strategy, talk a little bit more about how you build that business case to uh, your executives at HSBC. Um,
3: Are
2: there more elements to the business case than just cost
3: right now? Or? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, uh, I'll, I'll use, and, you know, as you... Approach a major transaction. You're you're really looking at a holistic, as as Mark was describing, approach. You're really analyzing every part of it. People, drive time. I mean, stuff that I would never would have done three years ago, four years ago. You, we are doing every piece. We bring in our HR partners. We bring in our IT partners. You know, workplace. You know, we haven't talked about workplace, but you know, we've embarked on a process around alternative workplace and and. Our partners have helped us create spaces that are much more efficient, that allow flexibility, where we're sharing seats, and not just our call centers, but in our corporate headquarters. Um, so so it's, it's really changed a lot. And, and, and again, it's a holistic approach. You have to involve everybody and everything.
4: Mark, how about at, at Fortune Brands? Yeah, I'll echo that. And you yeah. know, even, even more. Um, we, we go even further than that sometimes. So we'll look at the culture of, we'll look at the culture we're trying to impact in a lot of cases. So yes, cost is a big factor. Efficiency is a big factor. location's uh, a big factor. But we, we also want to make sure that we're providing the right workplace environment for the right people in the right place at the right time. And that's very significant because we've had issues in the past where um, you know we've had very successfully run businesses, um, manufacturing facilities, and we've taken... So we'll we'll sometimes pick the winners, and you know we still do a lot of lean manufacturing events and um, and those kinds of things. And you know the Toyota production process. So we'll take people into factories that aren't performing as well um, from other factories around our portfolio. And we've sometimes had issues that were purely cultural. So you know there would be improvement in some of the factory locations, but the improvement still didn't bring them up onto par with other locations. So. Um, there, are, there are a myriad of issues that are non-financial, non-location um, that we really look at, but it's, it's, it all plays into an overall um, approach where we, we really look at things on, on a wider basis at this point. So FASB 13 is a hot
2: topic in corporate real estate circles today. Have the changes in FASB had any impact on your leasing decisions recently, Mark?
4: Not for us. We don't do um, a significant amount of capital leasing. We, we're still in uh, a position where we could buy things if we want to. So we, uh, we look at overall cost of capital and cost mm-hmm. of funds. But traditionally, we own strategic assets, which are our factories uh, and lease non-strategic assets. But we generally don't do those with capital leases because the dollars just aren't there. John, how about we for, le- for
3: We lease most of our properties, and thus it does affect us. You know, and I'll say the, the biggest thing is I've got to know our accountants really well. <laughs> I have spent so much time with them. And every transaction, you've got that whole new piece of negotiating the deal with FASB in mind. And it's just, it's lengthened deals. Yeah. It's made it more difficult. Tests come back. No, you can't do this. You can do this. Well, we want the flexibility. Well, <laughs> sure. you can't do that. So it has changed how we are negotiating a deal and how we put deals together. Sure. Yeah.
2: John, so... Talk to us uh, a little bit about the transaction in Matawa. it's certainly a very high profile deal very large deal uh, what what went through your thought process as you approached that transaction and you know how in, in, in today's environment would have would you know i don 't want to second guess you or i don't want yeah, you to I second know. guess yourself but would would any of the decisions have been made differently
3: you know it it, it was a uh, for everybody that doesn't know, we, we build a new corporate headquarters out in Mattow, Illinois, which is the other side of the interstate to Lake Forest. Um, this thing, we had tried three times three times to really look at a you know, corporate campus here in Chicago. We had a one building, but we had ten more. And we really were trying to say, this isn't how we want to work. It's not a good environment. There's something we could create here that will be exciting and new. and. So we really started by going around and interviewing every one of our CEOs. And we sat with everyone and sort of created a checklist of what they were looking for. And we came up with sort of seven common goals that they all felt were important. And we, we put it back in front of them and said, guys, is this what you want? And, and it, you know, then we went on the search. We didn't do anything until we had what exactly they wanted us to do laid out. And, and those, those goals were financial. They were people goals they were transportation issues there were you know uh, image issues there were you know name it design workplace and and when we brought it back to them we laid it in front of them and said we've got a site that meets all eight of our goals and you know our, our chairman sort of coughed because he actually lived in Lake, Lake Forest <laughs> and i live just a little west of there so that was sort of the, I always refer to me as the target bullseye, was on my back for a couple of years with that transaction. But it, it really was presenting a really fully defined business case. And it really has been how we've moved forward from there. And we've done metro plans with that same type of deep analysis involving lots of people, not just that, well, we can cut the real estate costs from you know 27 a square foot down to 19. It was everything. and you know, start to finish on the approval process took us less than 30 days once we presented the business case. So it went pretty fast.
2: And Mark, you recently orchestrated headquarters transactions for Jim Beam and for Fortune Brand. Can you walk us through your thought process and how you how you approach your strategy with those two transactions?
4: Sure can. That was actually uh, phase two. So we in 2005, we sold our office products division, Echo Brands, up in Lincolnshire, and we co-located the headquarters of Fortune Brands at our operating company. So back in 2005, we also did a deal with a company called Pernod Ricard and basically doubled the size of Beam Global. So it seemed to make a lot of sense for us at that point to, you know, the, our office guys still loved us, but they wanted us out, and our, uh, our spirits guys were down the road in Deerfield. So we ended up locating in a, in a building very close to Beam um, and that was several years ago, as I mentioned. And we were fortunate with the timing of that, um, of that transaction, actually, because we, we made the deals coterminous, did a new 10-year deal on the Beam headquarters, um, which really worked well with ours. But at that point in the cycle, we also rolled the rent down in Deerfield at Corporate 500 from 23 bucks a foot to $13 a foot net. So when we went back and took a second bite this time, we're still pretty below market. So mm-hmm. the timing on the market was, was very good, and it's still proving good. Um, but at this point, we've um, reworked some of the BEAM lease. That building was getting a little long in the tooth, so BEAM had occupied it for about 20 years. Um, it needed a facelift, but it was really cultural. So um, the senior management was interested in changing culture of BEAM. The business changed. Um, the way they do business changed. They've become a much more global organization. So we looked at a lot of those different factors, and um, that was really a driver for that deal. And in a similar fashion, um, the corporate headquarters where I reside, um, you know, it really didn't meet our needs. We needed some more space. Um, some of the executive area was too small, specifically the boardroom, because our board's getting bigger, and we're getting more scrutiny. So we, um, we embarked on a rework of that facility as well and, uh, and reworked the deals again recently, and um, it's, uh, it's turned out great so far.
3: You know, he he brings up the point of, you know, the drivers in these things. And, you know, organizationally, we had been household here in Chicago for many, many years, and we had been bought out by HSBC. And one of the selling points is we sort of buried the old household brand with that building, you know, and and create a new, you know, effective, smart, um, I'll say energetic building. I mean, for everybody that goes out to see it, they're like, wow, this place is a buzz about it, and that's what you're trying to create. Um, it, it, is, it is, cultural almost. To a, to a, we had 250 people in offices that didn't get it when we moved up to Matawa. We are in a very open environment with few offices and um, low paneled cubicles that are small and shared. Probably 20% of our workforce is sharing a seat right now. In our corporate headquarters.
4: Hmm. Yeah, we did some of the same thing. So we've, we're going to a much more open environment. Um, it promotes teamwork better. And, you know, we had the, the Beam Building, it was an old facility. So it had a lot of private offices. In fact, it looked a lot like this space where you couldn't get a lot of light, you know, natural light through the windows because there was an office in front of every single window. So we basically are going in there and knocking down all the offices, um, you know, doing um, workflow, restructuring, looking at how things actually move around the organization and how you can better organize the workforce and and improve their spirits and generate excitement. That's a good way to put it.
2: What about service providers? Has your use of service providers changed over the course of the last 18 months? And where do you see it going in the future? I'll let you go first.
4: Uh, we have been with CB Richard Ellis for a long time, so it hasn on 't the, on the real estate side the service providers haven 't changed. We use a lot more service providers in different areas um, and we are using you know we, we do part of what we can do from a flexibility perspective is flex up and flex down so when there are specific projects we I, I refer to it as my army of consultants so i 'm actually a one man band but there 's an army of folks behind me that you don 't see so we, we've always done that, but we've really seen the pace of change pick up in the last 18 months. Um, we've seen sort of the professionalism and the way we recruit our service providers um, get a lot more involved, and we're, we're a lot more analytical in that process as well. So it's, um, it's a good time right now for, for certain disciplines, but you know, again, that's not just real estate. There's a lot of other things that we work on too. John, how about at HSBC?
3: Nice. Um, we're on a fully outsourced model mm-hmm. with Jones Lang LaSalle. Um, we are in process right now. In fact, our contract's up. We're out to bid for the next four years. So w- we have learned a lot. This has been four years of really growing as a group because we were used to that traditional. We owned everybody. Everybody worked for us. To depend on an outsourced provider, and you know, at first it was rocky, and then it got better and better. And I think. You know, you're know, you really dependent on getting quality people at the end of the day. You know, That's what you're looking for, bringing in the right people. Um, but I'll say the other piece that's you know, become increasingly important in our world is sort of the procurement world. They dictate everything. Everything's going to go through procurement. I don't care what contract you've got for anybody. And even when you have a preferred provider that's done a lot of work for you. Uh, Steve Wright and his team have done a lot of work for us over the last few years. They designed our headquarters. And, and you know we've used them other places. They're doing a couple other things for us, so a couple more buildings, and they still have to go through that same neat sure. grinder every time we do a deal, you know, out to bid with procurement. Sure. So.
2: so how many how many calls a day are you getting from various service providers in this environment?
3: You know, it's at first a lot. Yeah. But I'll say it's really slowed down because they know sort of how you're organized. Mm-hmm. So it's less, no doubt about it. And and I'll say. We push them to the procurement folks more directly. We don't deal with them unless I have a specific need. I'm looking for something. Yeah,
2: Mark. What about what about you? Are, are folks beating down your door?
4: Yeah. Unfortunately, I do procurement too. So I uh, <laughs> people route those calls to me. Um, but I will echo again what John said. Though you know we learn a lot through the RFP process. So. It, it helps us, um, you know, get ideas and think about things that we aren't necessarily thinking about. So that discipline is very um, important to us. And, you know, we're, we're doing a, a lot more with indirect um, procurement, indirect spend um, to the facility level, to, you know, manufacturing production. Um, we're really getting involved across the board, bringing that procurement discipline to, to um, other areas, which frankly didn't have that discipline in the past, and it's it, it tends to be very helpful for them too because it, it, you know they start looking at things in a different way, and looking at how they're going about some of the processes they're going through. So, um, yeah, we've seen uh, we've seen an increase in that due to the increased uh, breadth of what we're working on. Sure. Um, what do you think the future holds? Where
2: do you see corporate real estate going in the future?
4: Uh, I think the future is here now. I, I think that um, my role has changed a lot over my career at Fortune Brands. Um, you know, I, uh, We were talking a little bit about this at lunch too. I manage the, the uh, IT at the headquarters, but I also facilitate um, an IT forum, which is the senior IT person at each of our operating companies. and We get together and have mm-hmm. you know, quarterly conference calls and talk about strategy and where things are going. But I also do that on the credit side, the transportation side, uh, procurement. So, you know, we, we get involved with a lot of different things. And I think that the, the corporate real estate um, position is, is, if it hasn't already moved, which I think it has in my case, it's rapidly moving to someone who provides, who's a provider of space, to someone who provides the tools to do the work. So, um, whatever those tools may be. John, do you? You yeah, concur I think, with that?
3: Absolutely. I mean, I think the things that are changing for us is we've become global. You know, everything we look at is global. We look at how to leverage our global scale, our people. Um, we've got people from other countries coming in and key positions. We're sending people out. So, um, And it's, it, it creates a whole different dynamic in how you manage your real estate because at this point, where much of our call centers four years ago were U.S. based. A significant portion now sits in, in India and the Philippines and other countries. Um, I'd say the next thing is how we have elevated, and I think this is the leading organizations have elevated themselves to be more tied to the, the C-suite. Um, you know, in the past years, you were just go get space for us, do this, that. We really, I think, are partnered with them because we're analytical. We, we, we are able to bring in all the pieces of the puzzle and present solid business cases to them. And I think they really have a view that we're a good partner. And, you know, they don't, they don't go off and sort of make their own decisions anymore about real estate. I mean, there was a time, and we were laughing about this, I happen to have a facility in London, Kentucky. <laughs> you know, how the hell do you get one in London, Kentucky? Well, some senior executive way back when had family there. So, you know, somebody went and built it. You know, end of the day, not that London, Kentucky is a bad place, but you want to be able to influence their decisions. And and, you know we've got a much stronger ability to influence decisions with the C-suite today because of how we do our business. Um, I'll say this: we've come, we're pretty outsourced. As I listen to the industry, I don't think everybody is, but I think you're going to see more and more pressure put on these organizations because as you look for flexibility, you look for best-in-class talent. It's just a hard thing to generate internally to get enough good people. Um, I happen to be the lone survivor out of the household world. There's nobody else left because, you know, the talent level just wasn't there. You know, you've got to find good talent. So I I think outsourcing is is there to stay, and probably with some of the companies that haven't, they're going to face increasing pressure to do it at some some level. Um, I'll just throw one little sort of, I think how we get information and, I, and I'm going to go back to my kids. I got two kids in college. They're both real smart. But the information age of how, what we're going to be expected to deliver the next few years is going to be take it times two, take it times three. I don't even know. Because I think the information levels we're, they're going to expect out of us, the amount of data we're going to house, is going to be phenomenal. And it's going to drive decisions. And it's not just data. It's really taking that data and being able to turn it into usable information to make logical presentations to them. So, uh, you know, information is just growing, 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 and I think we've got to come with it. Um, to the point, I mean, I run the occupancy for our organization. Occupancy, it seems like a mundane thing, but we're driving decisions based on what we know. You know, it isn't that oh yeah, we got a couple hundred people there. We can tell you who sits where and why, what kind of, what kind of people are going through the turnstiles every day. We have got information, not just data, and we could turn it into useful ideas to them as what we should be doing in the workplace.
4: That's great. Yeah, I, I agree with that and that's very important. We're, you know, in the past um, companies made decisions on what they thought they knew. And now we're getting to the point where now you know it's not a perfect world, but we're getting visibility to a lot of things we didn't have visibility to in the past because the data wasn't accessible or the data wasn't where you could turn it into useful information. Um, and you know, as far as outsourcing, I'll, I'll, I'll talk to that a little bit, too. You know, outsourcing is not a perfect solution, and it's not a one-size-fits-all solution. We've had fits and starts in different areas on outsourcing. Um, we've had vendors who didn't know what they didn't know. We've had our operating companies that didn't know what they didn't know. And sometimes it's bumpy, and sometimes it doesn't work, and sometimes it works great. So that's a road that we tread down frequently, um, and we back up sometimes, too. So we'll take, you know, two steps forward, one step back. Um, but you know the mantra is still if you can do it better, faster, cheaper than than me, have at it. And you know, the other thing that I say frequently is I like people around me that are smarter than me and work harder than me. So those are a couple <laughs> of the outsourcing things that we always look for. Um, but I think too that that we're developing a better relationship with the C suite and I'll tell you something that the CFO told me the other day, he said, I'm not looking for people that can just drive down the road real fast. I'm looking for people that can build the road and then drive it down it real fast. And he said, you do a pretty good job of that. So I was pretty happy it's, with
2: it's that. a nice compliment. Um, A lot of people here would, would love to know what led you to your careers in real estate. So Mark, if we, if we could start with you and you could take
4: us way back. Sure. Um, I'm kind of a case study on how to mismanage your career. No, actually. Uh, <laughs> I have uh, so I have an education in real estate. I um, uh, got into the business in the early '90s. um, Went to Michigan undergrad. Went to Southern Cal for grad school. And I heard there was a Trojan out in the audience, so go Trojans. Um, But I went into into the real estate business out in Southern California in the early '90s. Kind of got you know did some pension fund work. Got tired of taking buildings away from people, and then went into brokerage because I thought I was going to get rich being a broker. And uh, that's when I went to the corporate side. So I, <laughs> I was at USG as a corporate um, real estate manager for three years, and then I moved over to Fortune Brands as the department head for the past 10 years, and um, it's been a terrific ride. So I'm, you know, I'm a trained real estate person. Always been in the business, understand the business, um, but I'm getting a lot more opportunities now because of um, uh, because of delivering and executing on a lot of things that we've done in the past. Where, you know. When we get into tough situations and transactions got complex or we had situations like we have now where, you know, I've participated in a lot of turnaround situations where things were difficult or bleak and there was no clear-cut way to get, to move forward, so when you can figure out a strategy and move through it and execute as as promised, um, there's a lot of opportunities that open up. John, how about yourself?
3: You know, out of desperation, no, I don't think so. (laughs) But I was a corporate guy. I was in a, a management position moving up the ladder. And our company was looking for executives to move over because our, our real estate department was really facilities people. And they, they knew they needed to inject some people that were you know, analytical, political, could influence, in, in, in retrospect to some of our people that really were technical experts. So they were looking to influence you know where our department was headed by putting some people in. I started out doing transaction and project manager work to learn the business. 15 years ago, I was out there doing you know small little lease deals all over the country. You know, out on the road three, three, three weeks a month, and uh, building, uh, managing, overseeing contractors, everything. So, but I'll say, the most fun I ever had. I, after I was in it a few months, I said, I'm going to quit. I hate this. And after a year, I said, "I love this." You know, it was one of those jobs. It is. You just either love it or hate it, and I enjoyed it. It was really because you were in control. You had all these decisions to make, and you know, if you're good at it, you grow. There's opportunities.
2: Well, great. I think we wanted to th- throw it out to you guys for some questions. At this point.
3: Just go ahead. Um, thank you very much uh, for sharing the history of both of your careers and your companies, how you're approaching your real estate. But I'm curious, how do you, with it ever, ever changing, what do you do to personally educate yourself in addition to your providers and
4: looking you know, sideways in your own organization and to your providers? What else do you
3: each do to just stay current and on top of everything that you face?
4: I'm a voracious researcher. So, I research a lot of different things. Um, I touch a lot of different things too. So, I, I sort of sometimes will find something that I'm working on on the IT side or the supply chain side translates well into something in a different discipline. So, um, that breadth is good, but researching, staying current, talking to experts uh, you know, you have to use experts because you can't be an expert in everything. Um, and then, organizations like this are, are also very good to, to stay current. Um, get feedback it's it's uh, sometimes uh, we do get in a position where we're like a lone wolf because there's a lot of people pitching things to us and you know at the end of the day we make the call and then we live with a decision so uh, we have to to um, to kind of network and make sure that we have some sounding boards out there too
3: um, right. you know it's it it's different with every organization. Um, my view on things is probably jaded because I've been a corporate guy for so long with the same firm, really two firms, and our our you become too internalized. And I think what, what I think the smartest people have done is gone out outside, look to the outside companies to provide us information to get out and do things like this to listen to people, to talk, and you know, do outside seminars, to do everything you can to grow your personal skill set. And and you know, we've done things from you know just people speaking, going out and talking to people, to actually getting up and making more formal presentations, stuff that takes you way out of your comfort zone, to, to grow what you can do. You know? um, but it is be moving from being that internally focused, Person to be an external and talking to a lot of people, a lot of different information sources.
4: Yeah, fork truck driver to CEO, you got to talk to a lot of people. Uh,
3: Mike Cuppinger with ESD. Uh, You talked to both of you, Mark and John, about making a much wider perspective in making corporate real estate decisions. Mention how does energy, you know, in the tax laws, cap and trade, some of the kind of things that we don't that are coming in the future where does energy rank in decisions that were made 10 years ago versus today and, and what do you think, you know, how much will energy impact decisions in the future? I'll, I'll start on that one because HSBC is absolutely committed to sustainability. It's a big mantra. It was a, one of our eight major goals in our, in our buildings. Every building we touch, the building material achieved achieve lead gold. Um, it is it is important to us at every level and I mean from managing our trash to everything we do there we make sure that it's uh, um, and we are now looking at how we retrofit older facilities what we can do we've got goals in every one of our buildings of what we can do to reduce energy consumption, improve sustainability, be a good partner to the community and it, and it's vocal to the outside world that it's important to us so you know it, it's a it's a new world, and I'll say ten years ago it was not even on the radar. You know, why are the electric bills so high?
4: You know? Yeah, I'll echo that. We're Fortune Brands is very committed to sustainability. Um, in the past, energy hasn't been that significant to us because we don't do a lot of heavy manufacturing. Our golf ball business is probably the heaviest manufacturing that we do. The rest of it is generally lighter manufacturing or assembly. Um, that said, you know, fast forward to 2010 and we're looking at how we track our carbon footprint across our portfolio, and that's really taken several years. So we started that process um, sort of in the in 2008, right before the right before the, the market really turned down hard, and we were running hard and fast down that road. And, and we had to kind of put the brakes on that because we had sort of primary business objectives to to go after. But it's it's rapidly coming back to the forefront across our portfolio of businesses and. That that has to do with what John talked about: how we manage our environmental um, issues, how we manage our energy consumption, how we manage our um, our trash, how we manage our processes. We look at uh, you know we look at it across the portfolio, and you know we, we want to be better stewards to the economy or to the environment because that's a big part of what we do. Uh, Brian Hayes with Bechtel Development. Uh, I was curious about how procurement is affecting your your day-to-day existence kind of examples of, of things that are good, things that might not, might not be so good, uh, how it's influencing your, your real estate world.
3: He's got procurement, but I'll say how it affects me. They're a pain in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. They slow everything down. But I mean, at the end of the day, they, I think we get to better products, we get to better decisions, where we're certainly more informed than we ever were before. Um, but it's, it's a, just a new world of learning how to wor- work in that environment. Um, I think the end line is it's good, but you have to get used to building time into your project line, timelines for procurement to let them to do their magic. And, and, and it is magic, because sometimes they come to you with ideas that you just never ever would have thought about on how you could approach things. So I'd say good and bad, overall good, but boy, that bears pain.
4: Yeah, it's um, <clears throat> overall I, I think part of the process is that it adds a lot more discipline up front with, you know, let's talk about real estate, specs and drawings. You don't go running out there and say, hey, I need a building, can anybody help me out? Anybody? Anybody? (laughs) What kind of building? How big? How many square feet? Where where does it need to be located? And a lot of things on the procurement side are the same way. Well, we need widgets. What kind of widgets? I mean, what are you going to do with them? How does this work? up front in the process, we, we are much better about quantifying our specs drawings, engineering requirements, understanding our own requirements, which is something that, frankly, we didn't do very well in the past. Um, but then as far as the procurement, the rest of the procurement process goes, there's there's a very sort of typical discipline to it. Um, and again, that's being driven to a large degree by data. So. We're, uh, in fact, we're in the process right now of outsourcing in its entirety our transportation procurement. So that's going to be outsourced, procured by another company that does it better, faster, cheaper than us. So we're looking at those costs, how that works, how the, the execute, you know, basically they had skill sets that we didn't have internally and we didn't, it, it wasn't a priority for us to take the time to develop those internally. You know, we could have gone out and hired 50 people and, and sort of trained them and gone down the process. but. We really wanted to execute on that and see if there were um, peripheral areas where we could move into, you know, with that discipline and and just help the process along. But we're we're squeezing costs everywhere.
0: Hi, this is Ralph Intagliata with uh, Nestle Waters, um, and uh, I'm in corporate real estate. And uh, our procurement department has actually gotten us involved in quantifying savings, and that's kind of become a. <laughs> Uh, overarching metric that they're looking for these days. Uh, I'm just wondering what your organizations are, what metrics you look to, your top two or three metrics that uh, you know you um, that measure how the corporate real estate department is performing.
3: I mean, we've, we the traditional ones are still there. I mean, you're still doing those, but you're doing new ones. Yeah, you know, we we look at things on a cost per square foot. We still do that. But we also look at, in more interesting metrics, around efficiency in the buildings. You know, we look at, um, when we analyze more so, it's by person, you know, because we're a people business. So the fact that I can get it at 12 bucks a square foot doesn't matter. The fact that I'm able to, and I'll say get more people in that building, the cost per workstation went from 10000 a year to 6000 a year because of this, 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 all the factors. So I think we're more focused on people numbers for us. You know? And I mean, every analytic that we've always done in the past, we still do. We still look at them. You know? But I think we're being more influenced on a people level.
4: Yeah, I think for us it really depends on what kind of facility we're talking about. So on the office side, we do traditional uh, metrics, you know, cost per square foot, square foot per employee. Um, those kinds of things, head counts, office sizes. So we really haven't gone down the road of standardizing, but I often caution people that it's extremely bad form for one of their senior managers to have an office that's larger than our CEOs. So we can kind of manage to that um, based on, on what we're working on. Um, but we, we take a different approach with different facilities. You know, industrial facilities are, are different than office facilities, and we'll, you know, again, look at that holistic approach. So we're, we look at it from a perspective of who's our customer. Um, well, first of all, is what we're making profitable. So that's always an important thing to consider. But then who's our customer, and how are we going to service that customer? With a factory, with a warehouse, or with a truck? Um, so we may quantify savings on the transportation side and say, well, you know, this facility is more expensive, it's in a better location, but your transportation costs are 20% less, and then it becomes a lot more of a capex versus a run rate um, equation. So, you know, what are you trying to optimize? Your your capex expense or, or your operating costs going forward? And, you know, we can have different kinds of conversations in the process by virtue of doing that. Uh, Rick Page from uh, U.S. Bank Corporate Real Estate. Uh, you both uh, mentioned that the people side of this is really... Uh, elevated um, can you explore with us the partnership that you have with HR in the process and has that changed and, and what's the nature of it as you have those uh, that dialogue about the people experience uh, getting the right people, attracting new talent and so forth?
3: I mean we partner with them on every project we do I mean everything that we're going to run, we work with them very specifically on you know, we want to understand the labor pool diversity. We have every one of those metrics, and they're part of it. Uh, we're not going to recommend a, a major project without their buy-in. Um, you know, we we look at from every possible angle the costs, and you know, new hire costs versus you know termination costs versus. We've done some really wonderful work with the an analytics group in CB Richard Ellis you know, that helps us understand, the, the, you know, a labor pool much better than we ever did before. And our HR team actually stood up and go, wow, we've never seen data like this. So we're using a, a mix of internal, external, but clearly our, we've got to get buy-in from HR to move anything forward.
1: Is there, as a follow-up, is there a, a partnership early on in the
4: process? Are you actually got a liaison Absolutely. person from HR that's kind of a part of these strategy sessions you're doing?
3: We're managed by a you know, we're a very outsourced model, so we have same thing on the on the HR. I have the relationship manager for that. He and I work together on things. So very good relationship. We meet regularly. We talk about ideas. You know, if you really understand your business at a fundamental level, which is what we're trying to do, you know, you're coming to them when they say, well, I'm worried about the growth, and I'm thinking about this. And you think, OK, now what does that mean to us? And really trying to take it down to Things we can do to improve flexibility, being ready when they're ready, you know having ideas of how they can grow or shrink the portfolio it's it's being ready all the time
4: yeah I, I would refer to that as being uh, as giving them what they want even when they don't know they want it yeah. and we, uh, so we, we partner with HR but we do it in, in several different ways we're a holding company so we own a lot of other businesses um, and I've participated with them and you know we, we I, led a um, a temporary labor outsourcing, a $42 million outsourcing project, to basically rebid all our temporary labor at all our factories. So we worked with them on that, looked at, you know, because of the seasonality of some of our businesses, we hire a lot of temporary employees, but they're seasonal, generally. So we've participated with them there. Um, We've looked at cultural issues with them and looked at how to facilitate, uh, you know, workplace improvements and and different things there. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think that we run past them just like uh, John does because we, you know, we work with CBRE. We've had a strategic alliance with them for 10 years. We do economic impact analysis, labor analysis. So when, when we're going out doing site selection, we have far and away more data and, and more sort of um, places where we can influence the decision than than they do typically at the at the corporate level.
3: We've also started, you know, for the last several years, surveying our employees with a really good survey that really asks a ton of questions. And there's some specific to what we do. There's some that, you know, maybe are a little grayer, but they clearly are influencers around brand and, you know, that help us look at how our employees and we can even segregate and say, well, they're in new facilities, they're in old facilities, you know, and really get a read if we, you know, how we're able to influence and help the management team, because they care about how the employees feel, you know. Because let's, say, let's be honest, if they're happy, they like the place they work in, they're going to be productive, they're going to put the hours in, they're going to do the right things.
0: You guys have all been pretty nice to Kyle up there. Anybody <laughs> got a question for Kyle? So, uh, Kyle, what, uh, what causes you angst these days? What causes me angst these days? Yes.
2: Um, we, we, we touched on it uh, in, uh, in the PowerPoint presentation a little bit. Uh, there's, there's no question that we're in an environment right now where in many cases, landlords simply cannot perform. And so when, when, you have, when, you, when you're in a client situation uh, with a pending lease expiration uh, in a building that doesn't have the capital to, uh, to provide tenant improvement allowances and other types of financial uh, concessions, uh, it, becomes, it becomes very difficult to look out into the marketplace if you have a client who is also in a position uh, where they don't have the capital to, to spend on a relocation. So uh, oftentimes there is, uh, there is uh, a, a situation that, that, that arises where you're, you're, you're very nervous as time goes on whether or not you're gonna be able to satisfy your, your client's requirements. Um, I'll also say that uh, timelines uh, in today's environment uh, are really causing a tremendous amount of angst. Again, as as I discussed briefly, um, dealing with lender issues right now that never really used to come into play uh, have drawn out timelines on on lease transactions significantly. So when you're in a position where you're structuring a deal with a landlord, uh, where they're providing you with concessions and let's uh, call it TI allowances and commissions, and those numbers start getting to be very significant. Um, of course, as uh, as as a, as a tenant represent, representative, you're not going to allow your client to go into a, a situation where they don't have an SNDA or subordination non-disturbance agreement, um, and so the lender will then look to the landlord that's making these commitments. And say to the landlord, "Well, in order for you to do this, uh, we're going to require security from from you." And so that is that negotiation between landlord and lender, which the tenant is complete really has no control over, uh, causes or can cause significant delays to our timelines. So those types of issues are are causing me angst um, these days.
0: Kyle, what types of users are looking and moving and looking for space now?
2: That's a good question. In downtown Chicago, a lot of the market activity is being driven by proprietary trading firms. Um, Also, technology firms have really kind of put their stake in the ground in Chicago. Companies like Google and Microsoft now have significant presence in downtown Chicago. Uh, We've also seen a lot of law firms really AM200-type law firms, so very large law firms that are headquartered in Tier 2 markets, Midwest markets like Kansas City and Detroit and Cleveland, markets like that who have for years wanted to break into Chicago but haven't really been able to compete, move into the market, uh, given the fact that in this environment you can compete with a lower cost structure and also be able to retain or attain some, some, some... some pretty good talent out there. So, we're seeing a lot of, lot of law firms now breaking into the, into the market, established firms.
0: Are there any other questions? Uh, John or Mark, you wanna beat them up a little bit too, or? <laughs> yeah.
3: I mean, I think the hardest thing we struggle with is, you know, we're looking for flexibility. Yep. And as you go to, to, to people like you for help, it strikes me, some of the stuff we're asking for, I think, to the, your side of that landlord who just can't do it, right. is, you know, well, I'm not looking. I need to blend and extend, but I need an option to cancel after sure. three years. And we're asking for some pretty difficult things because I've got to get that flexibility. How, how do you manage through that or with these landlords?
2: The, well, it really comes down to the relationship that you have with your client first and setting expectations very early. Yeah. Because uh, in, in this environment, not everything is possible. You'd like to think it is, but it's not. So I'd say that the key is very early on in the process, process, at the kickoff of the transaction, it's it's crucial that expectations are are set. Because otherwise, we're all gonna be in a bad position. You're gonna be in a bad position with your management committee because you've set expectations, and I'm gonna be in a bad position with you, my client, because I've set unrealistic expectations.
1: So
4: describe an ideal client.
3: <laughs>
4: <laughs> you know what? We, that, that's a tough
2: question. Do you I, like
4: us to know what we want, or do you I, like to educate us better about the market? Or
2: No, we'd, we'd much rather you know what you want. Um, uh, having you know, as much in, in, intelligence at the table um, can only help make the best real estate decisions. I learn a lot from my clients. Um, and, uh, and it's, you know, it's, it's sometimes fun educating clients along the way as well. But, but sure, it's, it's, it's easier when you're dealing with an informed
4: audience. So what have you seen recently that's more negotiable, and what is getting less negotiable in, in a typical? It's really, deal? you know, I, I,
2: I, I wouldn't say that there's anything that's, that's that typical these days. It really depends on the landlord's financial position more so than anything else. With strong landlords, there's no question that in this marketplace, um, concessions are at levels that we didn't see in the past. Um, However, um, it requires much more creative deal structuring in situations where landlords simply are in a, a financial position where they can't offer those types of incentives.
0: Very good. Mark, John, Kyle, thank you very much for sharing your stories and insight. It was fantastic. Uh, Also, reminder, uh, please sign up uh, for the Erie House Volunteer Day at the back of the room and fill out those uh, yellow sheets that all passed around and uh, provide us your feedback. Thank you all very much, and have a great rest of the afternoon.